everybody. This is Dr. William Clark for the Dr. William Clark Podcast. Glad to be with you. I am the host of the Dr. William Clark Podcast and also the new creator of nonprofit fundraising strategies on Facebook. It is a new group that we launched about a week ago. So if you listen to this podcast, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube uh, or however you're getting this or even on LinkedIn, please take a moment right now and go ahead and join our Facebook group. Um, I invite you to uh, be a part of that conversation. Uh, it is important that you be a part of that conversation because we talk about all things fundraising strategies as you guessed it. So this is a dedicated place for that and I'm so excited to, uh, to, to tell you guys about that. But today, I have a special guest with me. We're gonna be talking about individual donors. Now, the people in the nonprofit strategy group that we launched uh, on Facebook have made it clear that one of the things they wanna learn more about is how to court individual donors to support their causes. And this is one strategy of fundraising. And so to help me have that conversation, I brought on a donor. Uh, his name is Brett Martin. Brett, how are you, sir? Great, thank you so much for having me on, doctor. Yeah, yeah. Glad to have you on. And Brett, he's going to talk about uh, his perspective as an individual donor. And so uh, for those of you who are listening to the conversation, my hope is that you engage, that you listen, that you leave comments below, whether it's if it's in your favorite podcast and platform, or if it's actually on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, or, or Instagram, etc. cetera, uh, because we want to keep this conversation going. But also I encourage you guys, as you're listening to the conversation, to to process what Brett is going to share. We're going to have this conversation, a dialogue with all of you in mind. So with that being said, Brett, are you ready to get started today with this conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. So let's start here, Brett. Tell us just a little bit about you. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the, the most important part about me in this story would be about actually about my father, who is uh, who started the family legacy business. You know, a lot of times, you know, there are wealthy widows or they're the individual families, whatever, you know, we're not, we're not corporate donors. We're that small to mid-sized town where, um, where there's a group of families that are donors and, and we're one of those families headed out by the patriarch, which is my father. My father was, you know, a, a homeless teen and a, a janitor and worked his way up. And now, now he's uh, uh, the janitor who owns the buildings he used to clean and we've got a big portfolio. And so, Really learning about me really is I should pay proper deference to my father who made all the legacy happen. You know, I'm a I'm a real estate person. I've been selling subdivisions and doing all of this real estate work under under our family's umbrella. My sister's the the attorney, my brother's the builder, my father built it all together to have his three children work together in the family business. And now we own and run a, a, a thousand apartments. Um, and I'm proud to say that uh, with our 1,000 apartments, we have uh, made a commitment through COVID-19 to not let a single tenant leave. So we are not holding anybody accountable or responsible through this crisis. And, and my father says, look, we're going to take the hit. This community's done so much for us that we're going to get back this community. community. So just going to give you an idea that that's the guy who raised us. That's that common sense old school man that also had the wisdom to build a fortune and care about nonprofits and want to make a difference in areas, you know, in areas that affect him and impact him. So I'm following my father's yeah, legacy. That, that is really good. And I appreciate you kind of setting the tone uh, by talking about your family business, because, you know, when people think about individual donors, they do think about people that may 
uh, possess wealth. And, and I'm glad that you kind of pointed that out. You know, I'm curious in terms of uh, just to dig a little bit deeper about your family business, how did real estate, how did the family business impact the trajectory of your career? And how did it cause you to look at sharing your wealth with other nonprofits who um, may not even have the resources necessary to serve the many? Well, you know, my, my dad always equated this whole American dream to being something very exciting. And as he sees his children and his, and his grandchildren have all this wealth, he feels sorry for us in the sense that he says, I wish you guys could do what we did and start with nothing and make it happen. And I think when he sees people that aren't able to do that, he starts asking, why can't it happen? Like he always says, you know what, this is my, my father. He says, look, I want to find more charities with people of color because these young African-Americans, they just don't get the opportunities that I have. They don't get this. They don't. So then he starts sitting and we just start seeking opportunities to find ways to help in areas where somehow there's a, a missing cog in our community for something that needs to happen. You know, I can't get my father on board for anything with like theater or anything like that. So I don't care about people getting in touch with their emotions. <laughs> you know, I want, I want to help kids eat. I want to help give people a leg up. I want to create scholarships, those sorts of things. So he's a very practical man, and he wants to get other people lined up so they can pursue the American dream like he did. Yeah, and and I think that that, that particular statement I find fascinating because I think one of the things uh, nonprofits are super curious about, Brett, is how do individual donors who have extra money to spare or share determine – what they are interested in and what they want to give to what made your dad what were the principles that made your dad say hey i want to give to these type organizations now and i know he specified you know the african-american community but are there elements of uh or serve that type of population that kind of influenced his thinking yeah well you mean influence influences thinking influences his thinking now or did previously foundationally you know what talk about it on both sides talk about the early days from what you know and then where your dad is now and where your family is now in terms of its thinking okay so uh, uh so when, when it comes to the issues around race you know my my father ran away from home when he was 12 or 13 and he walked through the south and he, you know, I've talked to him about it a few days ago. He saw the KKK signs and all the other sort, sorts of things. And he, so he, he didn't know because the media never, you know, the news never covered anything. Like, you know, all of us, you know, I, I, I'm 54. When I, up until I went to college, I didn't realize that the, uh, the Black Panthers were scholars. I thought they were terrorists, ignorant terrorists. I had no idea. So it's like, we're, Get, we're getting like retrained and re-educated about certain aspects of society. We have the Latin American community here. We've got a school that's taking all of these kids from this uh, um, underprivileged areas where, again, generationally, none of these kids have ever, their, their parents didn't graduate. None, none of their family ever owned real estate. I mean, me as a real estate agent, I've been doing this for 30 something years selling homes. I have white families come in all the time. Oh, our parents are going to help out. Oh, my uncle's going to help with the down payment. Every black couple I meet, it's like, we're doing this on our own. We're the first ones. It always seems to go that way. So you start taking note of that. The family, you know, my, my father, you know, who is 78 years old, has Parkinson's. He, he recognizes these things and we keep seeing these things happen. And you say, well, what is it? These, you know, people keep getting knocked down. And we went, like, I've got a new one we're excited about. 
um, with these nonprofits I'm working with, I'm finding out that especially these underprivileged kids aren't getting an opportunity to, to go where they want because they can't pass math. And math is killing it for all of these kids. We have, you know, every thousand kids come in, half of them get kicked out and, and pursue something lesser or, or end up dropping out completely because of math. So that's something we're looking for. I'm looking for a program to help, help people. So, you know, again, I'm all over the place and I'm nonlinear, sorry about that. But, but it's stuff that presents, our, presents itself in our face. And one thing that's probably equally large is, you know, my dad had, a, you know, business partners and we have some, some kind of wealthy, you know, wealthy friends that are in the business and philanthropic community. They call you up and they say, hey, um, you know, this is my charity and, and we're having a big event and I need you to come. You have to come. And then we turn, we blow them off and they know you got to come. And then they rope you into coming. And then if you're not really that interested in the charity, you, for your friend's sake, you donate 5,000 bucks at the charity event and you leave. But then the ED comes over and talks to you and then they invite you over and say, just come do a tour, do a tour. Then you walk over and then you might end up getting, if you're really excited about it and your friends are excited about it and there's a sense of, so there's a sense of peer pressure and community amongst the donor elites, not that we're you know, great elites, but this, you know, it's a, it's a small pond, but in our community, we're pretty important. You know, we get, we get a half a dozen donors like us together, we can make a real stink. I mean, I've got a, an executive director that was just fired from her board and we found out about it after she was fired and we all love her. So the, one of the old widows, very wealthy woman calls me up. She's like, hey, I'm not gonna stand for this. So all of a sudden I realized just this small group of us donors, we could, dis we could potentially dictate who's on a board. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's a very powerful thing. So it comes with a great deal of responsibility to try to do the right thing. Anyway. You know what I'm taking, <laughs> you know, what I'm taking away, uh, you know, cause you were talking about your, your dad and your experience of selling homes, renting homes and how, when you're dealing with the majority population, um, the majority white population in our country who have a support system and infrastructure, uh, in place to help finance down payments, uh, monthly payments, et cetera. And then you encounter families of color, black and brown, who don't have those, those, uh, those type of in, in, uh, supports in place. It, it, one of the things I yeah. guess I'm drawing from that is it seems as though you're saying that individual donors uh, tend to find areas to invest their philanthropic dollars in as it relates to their work or as it relates to a cross section of their life where they, like you mentioned your father going down to the South. Does that sound about the right way to summarize decisions that you see in your yeah, circle well, of individual donors? Well, it, it is, you know, it's a funny thing. We have a very, we have a very kind, thoughtful, low ego, uh, like with my dad and, and Connie and a few of these other people, they don't have big egos. Like my dad wanted to make sure when we were building the dream center, you know, everybody donated a big chunk of dough and they were running out of opportunities to, you know, uh, trying to get more donors in. And there are, there's a certain segment of the donor population. that's very ego oriented, very legacy and name oriented. And my father wanted to make sure that we got, you know, my father had the opportunity to have the big hall at the, at the place named after him, you know, the Ken Martin, whatever hall. And he said, look, I, I can't take that name because we want more donors to come in. So he, so we created the Ken Martin janitorial closet. He, he paid a half a million dollars to have a janitorial closet named after him because he wanted to make sure that the next half a million or whatever it was a million come in 
that that person who wanted naming rights would get it. So I don't know what, what the relationship is between big ego donors, because just like at fundraising events when everybody's drinking, wealthy guys with big egos will donate more to show up their friends. So there is a sort of a camaraderie thing and an e ego and a peer pressure. But I think with long-term donors, it's gotta be a heart move. Because even a family who's not necessarily really wealthy can make a huge impact by saying, we love this charity, we're super involved, and when we leave, we're leaving our house to you. You know, so so that's that level of donor involvement where we get where we love like REDs that we work with. We have their self cell numbers. They have ours. We talk to them intimately. We have we have deep relationships with them, rooted in trust. And so that whole conversation, like how do you build? How do you, it's, for me? It's like how do you fall in love? You know what? Do you, you know when do you hold hands first? You know when's the first kiss? It's like I don't know, man. Be honest. Be your best self and go out there and show what you do. It's the executive director who doesn't try to sell you and just says, hey, look, man, I appreciate your money, but, and, 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 I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't wanna invite you to come down just for the golf event, just for the gala. You know, I don't want you on my board just because you have, my, have money. I want you to come down here and just hang out with me so you can see the world as, because from my executive director perspective, I want you to walk with me and I want you just to see what I do. And for me as a donor, when those EDs have asked me to do that, I go down there and maybe half of them where we already think they're doing something great, they move you and magical things happen. You know, you're sitting there and all of a sudden the little kid comes up and says, my mom has been clean for three weeks. Oh, honey, let's talk about it. They start crying and all of a sudden, oh shit, I'm writing a check. You know, I'll pardon my rent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Getting them there, getting there, because you know it, it bothers me when when I get calls and and they want to, you to come down there, but it's always a veiled money ask. I mean, I wish people could think long game and have these nonprofits not do. Oh God, we'd love. Oh, I'd really love to get your opinion on this. Well, what, how can I help? Oh, we need ten thousand dollars. Well, that's not my opinion. What you, you know? It's like if they, people get so short sighted and they can't play the long game. You know, whether it be, you know, a hustle or, or whatever it is, you've got to play the long game. You know, my dad would call them. There's a difference between big game hunters and small game hunters. You know, when you're a big game hunter, you wait. And you've got your big rifle and the quail comes out. You don't blast the quail into a big puff of feathers and scare off the buck. <laughs> you know, something maybe my father would say. You know, it's like you, you, you build the relationship. And even if, and, and we'd say, you know, do you think this guy's hustling us? My dad would say, I don't care if it's a hustle. If the person has the maturity and the patience to cultivate me, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care at all. He's, that shows me he has the, the, he or she has the discipline to be somebody that I want to be partnered with. And you know, they're going to be around because they have the ability to cultivate relationships. So I want to dig in. I want to dig in a little bit more because now we're moving into the next question, which is what do donors look for? And I want to highlight a couple of things you mentioned. You know, you, you just said that uh, that nonprofits need to think about the long term game of uh, cultivation and fundraising, and it requires a heart move. I really like that. Uh, you also said don't try to sell a donor and uh, try to play the long game when making an ask. So what, what I want you to explain to the audience is what is the process that you recommend nonprofits go through to play the long game because you know there's this philosophy of thought that says if i have a need be bold enough to make the ask and you're saying sometimes uh, uh foundations or organizations rather uh kind of jump the gun a bit 
So talk to us and walk us through what does it look like to play the long game when appealing to an individual donor? Okay, so if someone's coming in um, and they're coming to your event every year and donating $1,000 at the event or $5,000, or you just met them this year and they donated $25,000 because they're friends of a friend and they're really rich, um, you know, those aren't the people you want to go too deep with too soon. It's like if I just met somebody, you know, I could see the nonprofit thinking, look, we just met this new person and they already put X amount of dollars in. We've got to really stay on them. It's like, I, I, I think it's more that, I think it's wiser to do everything you can to avoid appearing that you're, you know, money hungry, that you're pushy. Uh, you know, what I like to, like, I, I can think of my friend Linda that ran this uh, amazing children's center. Um, she got, you know, a million dollars and never asked. And it was all about get, say, hey, look, I want your check, but can you come down? And, and again, not come down when there's going to be a lot of fanfare and we're going to treat you. It's that whole thing. We're going to treat you. Oh, we've got the best meal. We've got the best golf. We've got a great speaker. It's like, no, I just want you to come down. This is really, let's get real. This isn't, this isn't 1-800-CARS-FOR-KIDS. We're not pitching, you know. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's the reason we're donating is because we care. And when you get me to, when you get me educated uh, passively or actively through what it is you do, I got to get it. And once I really get it, if I'm there in the first place wanting to donate, I'm going to be scrambling my brain trying to come up with creative ways to help that nonprofit. I mean, I reach out, I reach out to the gospel mission. And I don't even do faith. We don't typically even do faith-based donations. But as soon as we realized that the gospel mission was the only one taking care of these homeless drug addicts and getting them clean, then we started supporting them. So we call him. My father says, call Jeff and see if they need anything. I mean, so, so I, I'd say, you know, stay off the money and stay on the um, get, getting them down there. Like I've, I've got friends of mine who've written checks for years and, and uh, um, I say, dude, stop writing checks because for me as a donor, when you don't just write a check, when you actually physically go down there, you have some of the greatest experiences of your life. This donor thing is very addictive. I mean, being a, running a nonprofit feels amazing. And, uh, and look, and I've been the board of a nonprofit. And I've started my own nonprofit. But, but I'll tell you, um, going down there and making that difference of something that you believe in and you understand how it works and you put in, put in that money or you put in that time and you make a change, it's like crack. I mean, and there's nothing, I, can't, I, feel, I feel selfish. I feel selfish in the giving because of the, the, the rush of adrenaline and joy I get. And that's what you wanna give those donors. You wanna have, the, you wanna have them addicted to helping your charity because they know you're, you're practical and you're efficient and you're, and you're paying attention to opportunities in that field to make things better. And you know, I, I get people like I, I do real estate. Someone's thinking about a building acquisition. So the YWCA, a local regional charity, and, and, we, and I will donate, we will donate to the, the YWCA. We typically don't like to do national, but they have their own funds. They have their own building funds and trust here that they keep it separate so we can feel safe. That's one of our fears, especially now because of all the state's rights and all the splitting, a lot of donors are not gonna wanna be going, investing, donating into um, charities where their funds are going to potentially get watered across over states. So, you know, I, I want to keep, keep our money local. But so, so the, the lady at the YWCA, the ED, she calls me up and she says, look, 
you've been in real estate for 30 years. We're thinking about getting a building. I don't want any money from you, Brad. I'm not asking for anything. I'm asking for free advice. So drive me. I want to drive you around and show you some real estate. Well, the, you know, an hour into the conversation, I've already committed to, you know, giving a hundred thousand dollars down through the charity to help, to help her do it because I saw the need. She never pitched and she made it very specific. That wasn't going to happen, but you know, you can't stop somebody from wanting to give you money. <laughs> but, but let me ask you, so, you know, we all in a nonprofit industry would love to be uh, given a hundred thousand uh, dollars. If you're willing to give to Connecticut, by all means, you will be well received over here. But, yeah. but, but, you know, take us into the mindset though, because when you say that this person didn't pitch you yet, you committed a hundred thousand dollars. What led to that transition where you went from free advice to committing? And, and, and I think the part of the struggle I want you to help uh, organization uh, executive directors with is I have a very specific need. I have a dollar amount. I have a gap need. And I'm listening to this individual donor say, don't pitch me yet. He's committing dollars. How does that pitch process happen without pitching someone or selling someone? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, it's an interesting, I was just thinking about while we were talking about it, you know, I was just going to go through my, my mind over the years of, of the, the times we got pitched and we asked almost every time it wasn't from the ED. It was from a, a super hyper loyal donor that the other donors had a relationship with. <clears throat> so that person where the ED and that person, you know, go out to lunch together and they've known each other for years. And then I get a call from Susan and Susan says, look, Hey, I was just down over there at kid street and, and they've got a problem. We got to work on this. You got any ideas, Brett? That, you know, that, so, and sometimes the EDs, when they, they, uh, um, if they've got that person, this one lady, Susan, she's, she's amazing. She's not super wealthy, but she knows all the wealthy people and she knows, and she spends the time with all the EDs. So when the events are coming up and the, and the money numbers don't get met, they reach out to her and she calls up and she nags her rich friends and makes them do the right thing. And the, and the ED and the nonprofit doesn't have to take any heat for it. I mean, it works. It's effective. So, and I, and I appreciate that clarification because I think it puts into perspective uh, what they used to call the six degrees of separation. I almost mm -hmm. feel like it's no longer six degrees. It's probably three, two to three degrees now of separation. And so I guess one of the things I want to make sure our audience is taking away is to your point that you've been making, the relationship matters, right? And I think you kind of brought it full circle that if you have a relationship with a donor, even if it's a single relationship, that relationship needs to be invested in, poured into, uh, given deeper, a lot deeper. of attention, right? You need to go deeper. And that particular donor then becomes the evangelist, the spreader of the gospel of your nonprofit, who then can rope in people like Brett. Does that sound about yeah, the right you are absolutely right so so i'd say if you know you know the, the vanderbilts and the vanderbilts are good friends with the van cleese the van cleese are good friends with the johnsons that work with them at the insurance level but they're not really wealthy but they still go to dinner parties together funny thing the, the wealthiest family they don't pick up your calls the old guy the old man pay what do you want and whereas the guy who doesn't have the big money he's like hi how are you i can almost tell you know, in this realm where I've got multimillionaire friends and r regular normal humans that I hang out with, all the wealthiest people, the hardest to communicate with, 
they they're they're time you know they immediately so often let you know how precious their time is and you better not be wasting it and all that so it's that conduit person who who's out playing golf with those guys and drinking with those guys or doing whatever it is there that can be your bridge so you you build deep with all of those people and cultivate those relationships um but you know it, it's surprising some of the, some of the big super wealthy people they uh, um they want a place to let their guard down they want a place to be vulnerable you know they're a hard ass at work all day and but they want a place where they where they can be charitable and look here's here's stuff that excites me so there's a there's a medical group and I didn't know much about them and Connie made me go down. So, so we went down there, we started checking it out. Nothing really, re you know, it's, a, it's a duplicated services. They're helping homeless people. And they said this nugget to me. They said, look, here's what happens. We have all these people that, are, that, that don't have health care. They don't have Blue Cross. They don't have Blue Shield. They don't have anything. And they end up taking ambulance rides that cost the city a fortune and they cost the hospital a fortune. And once we started offering these services, we sit down with these people and we fill out the medical forms with them so they can get paid and we get paid. So all we need is help with this facility. But once we're going, you know, the big fear for donors, you don't want to give money and have it die and have all your legacy lost. So it turns out that this nonprofit was saving the city three or $4 million a year by keeping people out of the emergency rooms. And we look at that, and well, this is an amazing thing. So the hospital sees that, so the hospital's helping. So we all helped and pitched in, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a bunch of pitching in with them because the I know the hospital will never let them go because the hospital needs them. So I can back off. Sometimes we want to be a safety net. We'll see. It's a big you know fundraiser. We're trying to raise a million dollars. My dad will say, "Wait, let's let the community do this. Let's just watch. It, if they all get together and do it, we don't have to spend a dime. Let's be the safety net for people. So that's a very exciting thing for us just to be there in the back." waiting because you know you know i'd see something happen and say we should really donate I said no it's already happening the whole community is all coming together why would we come in with a million dollars when the city and all the people in town are doing this let's wait and find out one where there's a powerful need but people aren't getting it and somebody's missing it let's come in and help there and we've done some very exciting bridge financing for COVID 19 for helping people uh, buy buildings who couldn't buy buildings it's like buying you know got my father to agree to buy, buy this nonprofit a building because they couldn't get the grant finance and they needed until they owned the building. So we agreed to buy it for them first, give the building to them, then they can go get their grant money. And see, and then we'd, we walk without having spent a dime, but we got them a new building and interest rates are so low, now's the time to do it. But, but it's those sorts of things when you feel like, whether it be like matching donate, matching grants, when we can go in and take one of our dollars and make it work like $2 or $5 or $10 or make a huge change, it's super exciting. When we're donating to this one nonprofit and they, and they in the speech they say, hey, uh, you know, we ask, what's, what percentage of the money that we're, you know, that we're giving you know, is, is operations money, what's coming in from the government? Turns out that this nonprofit is all of our donations that we're raising as local donors only make up 4% of their budget. And my dad's like, what? Why don't they just trim the fat and leave us, leave us off the hook, leave us alone? If it's only 4%, it doesn't feel like we're helping. So that's another thing for a donor. You don't want to feel like as a donor that you're not doing anything, that you're not really helping, or you're paying for something that's going to die, or you're paying for, you know, a, again, like a cult of personality with an ED where I'm thinking, wait a minute, this executive director has not trained anybody to replace them. 
They're holding all the secret sauce. Nobody knows except this person. And why am I going to invest a big legacy when this executive director leaves? This nonprofit's over. I mean, there's, there's certain times when you see certain situations where it makes you not want to stay in for the long game. And, and I've had questions. So there's a lot of like mental triage we're doing about how we keep our value for that building. Because, you know, we've been stung. We, we helped a, a nonprofit. We gave them a building that was worth $3.5 million. We sold it to them for $2 million and financed it. They got in trouble six months later and, and sold it and walked with $1.5 million cash. That hurts. As a donor, it is heartbreaking to give a ton of money away to a nonprofit and have them make poor financial choices and burn your legacy like a brush fire. Yeah, you know, I can't can't speak to that, um, but I definitely believe you um, in terms of how that might have made you feel. And I think in terms of response to your dad about trimming the fat, you know, one of the interesting things that I think needs to happen between donors and nonprofits is 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 co-education. So yes. you've been educating, um, you know, the nonprofit world today on your perspective. What I, what I would say to donors who are curious about, you know, what's the point of your donation if it only makes up 4% of a greater budget? One of the things that nonprofits are wrestling with all the time is how to pay administration. Most uh, grants don't allow more than 10%, and 10% is generous, but 10% towards administration. A lot of them try to squeeze nonprofits out and say, listen, 5%, 4%, 3% can go to your administration. That's for your ED and all your C-suite people and the back end and back office support. And it's the generous donations and annual giving of individual donors like you that allows a nonprofit to have that type of flexibility. And so I think there, there is a benefit to that 4% being there because it allows the organization to have the necessary leadership. But this leads me to my next question, Brett, and, and that is, you know, you started to tell the story about this particular organization who asked for free advice and didn't ask for money. Talk to us about ways donors, individual donors would like to get involved or wish to get involved with or without money. Yeah, you know, the truth is, honestly, that they don't want to get involved. This is like eating your vegetables. We're too busy. We have too many people asking. All the people I talk to, you know, like, I, well, I can't give anymore. I'm just tired. I mean, it's, it's no fun. It's no fun being asked for money. It's no fun having to say no, having to go down, having to get all this stuff. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like exercising and eating right. Things that you know you should do. Um, the reward is is once you've done it, but it's really hard to get people to make that move. That's why, that's why there has to be something that feels right, that feels comfortable, that feels inviting. It doesn't feel like a hustle. Again, a lot of people are like, hey, it's a golf thing or whatever. My dad never did that. We were never into, you know, wanting to go to the events and having the, you know, and, and having the fun. You come, you come and have fun. We're going to treat you like a king and then you're going to get drunk and write checks. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of that that happens. I've seen a lot of that that happens, but I think it should go a lot deeper. And I think that sharing those, like that, that, that four percent, you know, story. Like for me, I, I that resonated with me and my dad. No one, if you're gonna, if you're, if you're an executive director, if you're working in a nonprofit, and, and you say something like that, you should know the kind of impact it's going to have on ignorant donors like us in that area, because it's an area I'm ignorant. You educated me on it, so it's like 
if you're going to drop something on somebody that could potentially be perceived in a way that could potentially turn off a donor, understand that a donor, a, a savvy donor or caring donor should always be thinking impact for dollar. Am I making a difference? Am I, you know, and, and, and if I hear again, like I said, that, you know, what I'm providing seems like a, a, a pittance compared to what it is you need, then one, I feel like I'm, I'm almost not even needed. Like when we ask the food bank, hey, how much money do you need? Well, we need $2 million a month. I go, well, we, we give a million dollars a year. If you get in trouble, we can't even help you. Why would I even start helping you guys? I mean, it, there must be something else that's going to bail you out to prevent you from being gone. And it's not going to be us. We can't be on the hook for, for $2 million a month. <laughs> not, not ever. So I just want to make, you know, so, so uh, um, I guess, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego components, a lot of emotional components here, but um, it's relationships. I think, uh, I think that when these, when these uh, people from the nonprofit work at like a ministry and they share, and then other people share, we talk, you know, when I talk to nonprofits, other nonprofits that are close with me, they know about all the other competing or complementary nonprofits out there. And they'll tell you if you, if you're working with a really good ED and you really trust them, like I could trust any of my people and trust that they're, that they're going to give me an honest advice. Hey, what do you think about this nonprofit? Well, you know what? I like what they do. They're a little top heavy in administration. I see that, you know, and we go, okay, I get it. I see that. I've kind of wondered that, you know? And so, um, and then there's a problem with the local nonprofit. The other nonprofits seem to know. And you start finding little clues that there are problems, just like there are little clues that the things are going amazing. So, um, again, it's about building those relationships and take everybody who's already a donor. If you say, we, we kind of discounted this donor because they don't give a lot of money, your three degree of separation thing, especially in a small town, is absolutely right. Get deeper with everybody. <clears throat> Get deeper with everybody, and it will cross-pollinate and trickle up you know i think the moral of today's conversation because you keep saying it over and over again and i believe in it is to go deeper just go yep. deeper um and i think that that's the best way to end this conversation brett for everyone listening to this conversation uh i think i can speak for brett when i say going deeper actually adds a lot of value it adds a lot of staying power to your organization funders and donors can trust your ability to carry the mission forward and their legacy forward as brett mentioned brett for those who are looking to get a hold of you those who may say i need to talk to brett and go deeper with him what information do you want to share with the public that uh, they could possibly get in touch with you or your family or even you know come to you because they may have an idea where you guys might be able to partner with it what's the best way to get a hold of you yeah you know um it's uh, brett martin b-r-e-t-m-a-r-t-i-n at comcast.net i'm on facebook brett martin with one t um and uh, uh and i'm on your those uh, uh i see you on uh, those uh, facebook groups uh, um the nonprofit that's where we met right the nonprofit from nonprofit facebook groups uh, you seem to be everywhere, and I love the, the advice uh, and counsel you're giving people on the pages. Awesome. Oh, by the way, yeah. By the way, one, one last thing is that you know I've been studying that new thought stuff with enlightenment and everything. You know, um, if there's a way you can separate, just like with general enlightenment, treat this like the rest, every other facet of your life, or what you'd like things to be. If you can separate yourself from expectation when it comes to this. Because that whole sort of quid pro quo angle 
you know, when you're true doing a true ministry and it really makes an impact, if you can just be, be embody the great work that you're doing and the grace that you're doing and be present and be kind to people and reach out and try to disassociate yourself and disconnect yourself from an expectation of a quid pro quo or gaining favor. And then it happens in a way that is absolutely mind boggling. You know? That is, <laughs> okay. Uh, I can explore that a lot longer than we have for this podcast. <laughs> Cause you know, I, I'm going to say this, you know, especially for newer nonprofits starting out, Brett, there is this connection with every ask every new nonprofit has. And internally, new nonprofits or nonprofits looking to get over the hump are saying, my value is defined by Brett's response, reaction, or his giving. And the truth is, in terms of what you're saying, is when you separate your ego, your self-preservation, your self-assessment from the outcome of this ask, if you will, you'll find that there's more peace. You'll see the lessons learned from a rejection. You'll see the lack of a fit when a donor says no. You'll find out what fits or makes sense for your organization. There are so many things to draw from that statement. But Brett, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much to everyone watching and listening. This is the Dr. William Clark Podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. Peace. Have you ever wondered how large nonprofits consistently generate millions of dollars? Have you ever wondered how to write the perfect grant or how to successfully manage a grant or even how to find money beyond grants? Hi, my name is Dr. William Clark, and I'm the creator and instructor of What You Should Know Before Applying for Grants. This masterclass has over 28 modules of training, and it comes with tools, tips, and tricks on how to generate significant money for your nonprofit. Some students have been fortunate enough to build six-figure programs, and others have been fortunate enough to triple their fundraising results because of this masterclass. Whatever your fundraising goals are, this masterclass can help you achieve them. To register your seat, simply go to MySixFigureFunding.com. That's MySixFigureFunding.com. And you'll be taken immediately into our student portal where you can access all of our trainings. You can take the trainings on demand, at your own pace, and at any time. You even can interact with other students and me all online from the comfort of your home or your office. If you want to secure your seat today for this masterclass, what you should know before applying for grants, simply go to MySixFigureFunding.com. Again, that's MySixFigureFunding.com. And I'm looking forward to learning with you and growing with you as you achieve your fundraising goals for your nonprofit.